Mary Moore was a uh, senior adult lady. She was the wife of one of the first deacons that I ever ordained as a pastor at First Baptist Church, May, Texas. And Mary was a rather large woman. She loved to eat. She was of German descent, you know, big bone lady. And uh, she was always concerned. We'd go to her home and uh, uh, she was concerned that my wife didn't have enough greens to eat. So uh, and Susan looked a little pale. So she would always uh, have two or three different greens out. And Susan does not like cooked greens, but she's liable to offer her turnip greens and, and spinach and, and, and as a, go along with her salad, the whole shebang. Well, Mary was a lady who, who loved to cook. She loved people. But more than that, she loved Jesus. And she had this, uh, uh, you just knew when you were around her that, that she had a love affair with her Lord. She's one of those ladies who, uh, she taught our preschool and kindergartners and Sunday school. And, and she was like that mama hen with all of the little chicks that were always around her. And she was always trying to take care of her little chicks. And so it really caught me off guard one uh, I guess it was in January when Mary came to me and said, uh, Brother Dennis, I, I believe the Lord's telling me to stop teaching those children. Mary, how can you do that? that th those kids are, they need you. They love you. And I know you, you love those kids. And, and she said, I don't know why, but the Lord's laid on my heart that uh, starting this next church year, which we started the church year in September to go along with the, the school calendar, uh, I'm supposed to step down and somebody else is supposed to teach. Well, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and yet she quit teaching those kids. And within a few months after quitting, she quit teaching those kids. It was found that she had cancer and it was an inoperable cancer. And her time with us was going to be relatively short. And, uh, I remember going to visit Mary, uh, several months later, this, like I said, very large woman, I, I never asked her her weight. I know better than that as a pastor. But uh, she had shriveled down to where that big German frame had nothing but skin hanging on it. And she was probably around 80 pounds. And uh, it, was, it was tough for me and a couple of deacons who went to see her. But Mary made it easy. She was in a hospital bed there in her living room. She had this huge grin on her face. And as we talked to her, all she wanted to do is talk about Jesus. She'd shared the gospel with her uh, home care nurses. She, she shared the gospel with her family. And she still had a, uh, one or two in her family who didn't know the Lord. She was continually talking to them about Jesus. And Mary was okay. Because Mary knew that even though her time here was short, it wasn't going to be long until she got to step out of this body and to go see Jesus. Mary was a, a tremendous blessing. But Mary is one of those great reminders of me of what it means to be ready always to share the hope that is in you. I had a, a, a horrible tragedy take place at May with the death of a young man one time, and I've shared that story many times, but I remember as I, I went into the home to visit with the parents the mother of the young man who had passed away, I'd never heard her pray out loud before. And I got down on my knees next to her and her husband. And I said, y'all want me to pray? Y'all want to pray? And I got down on my knees and she immediately started pouring her heart out to God. I'd never heard her pray in public. She's a very private person. 
but she was crying out to God. And I remember talking to the friend of mine who had been the, their pastor before me, and he, he used an illustration. He said, you know, when an orange gets squeezed hard enough, that's when what's on the inside comes out and you know what's really there. Inside of her was this incredible relationship with Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, and it's, Peter's been talking a lot about suffering. He introduced suffering uh, in, the, in the first chapter, in the first few verses. He's talked a lot about submission and how we have a proper heart as we approach those in our life. But then he's come back around to dealing with this issue of suffering. And today in particular, the center focus or the center point of, of today's message is this idea that Peter, Peter calls us that when you suffer, always be ready to give a, a, an answer for the hope that is in you. Well, that means first and foremost, you have to have the hope in you before you can be ready to give an answer for it. But I want to start with that, the very premise of what he launches there. When you suffer, this week I've, I've listened to these Facebook reels. How many of y'all have you get hooked on those things? And you start watching these ninety-second, uh, one-minute reels. I ran across one twice that almost made me threw up. It was one of the prosperity gospel preachers bragging about how he had the largest house of any preacher in the world. And, and Jesus wanted him to have this giant house. And, and he talks about how, how Jesus told him, don't go buy an old car because I don't want you parking that thing in front of my house when you go to church. Uh, all in, I mean, it just makes me want to throw up. I, I looked up a quote of his today and, and, and it, it, I just can't imagine how somebody like this is going to answer to God. He says this at one point. I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you this particular prosperity gospel. I, I hesitate to call out names because but I think sometimes there's just wolves that need to be called out. This guy, you've probably heard him. He's from Louisiana. His name's Jesse Duplantis. He said this. He said, I'm going to say something that'll knock your lights out. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He's got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He said, God is bound. God can't give life or death. In fact, he's Duplantis goes on to say, God says death and life are in the power of whose tongue? Yours. This is the heart of the word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel that says, if you say it, it will happen. It's the word of faith. It's the words that matter. In fact, these guys will even say that it wasn't the power of God necessarily, the innate power of God that created the earth. It was his spoken word. And, and by that, then they transfer that to you and I and say, if you just say the right words, then God has to, or it will happen because of the power of the word. Now, I'm going to step on a few toes here because this does matter. But I'm going to step on a few toes here. Every once in a while, I hear the phrase come from some very well-meaning people. In fact, I know this phrase has actually come out of my mouth in the past. It's the phrase, prayer works. Now, we all understand and we believe that when we open our hearts to God and we come to him and we pray for healing and we pray for particular issues, that sometimes God in his power answers prayer. But when we say prayer works, what we're saying is it's the words that I've brought before the throne of God that work. 
The power is not in my words. That's the heart of this word of faith movement. That's the heart of the prosperity gospel. The power is in God. He holds the power of life and death. He is the one who will carry us. He is the one who will walk with us. He is the one who holds all of the innate, inherent authority and power. And for someone to say that, that oh, God doesn't want me to suffer, you know, God came that, that I could only have health and wealth, it's simply a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus in John chapter 16 tells the disciples, hey, guys, things are about to get real. The night before he went to the cross, he said, now, I haven't told you all of this stuff earlier because you couldn't handle it then, but it's about to get bad. Christians, uh, Thomas Schreiner in his, uh, uh, he's a, a New Testament scholar of today and in his commentary on 1 Peter, he said this in regards to what, what Peter wrote. Uh, he says, suffering stalks the believer until this present evil age comes to an end. That's just true. You and I, as long as we're on this earth, and in fact, until the Lord descends from heaven with a trumpet and snatches us up out of this world, we're going to go through rough times. So when Peter writes in verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Peter's not saying as long as you're a good person, you will never face harm. Peter is acknowledging the fact that as we suffer, it's better to suffer with the Lord than it is without. Now that's the introduction of the sermon. Let me get to the text and the rest of the sermon. I want to read starting in verse 10, even though our text today picks up in verse 13, because Peter quoted a passage last week that we want to revisit from Psalm 34, because he's going to build off of that going forward. It says, for the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. You hear that? Uh, uh, some people want to take that first verse, the verse 13 and say, oh, that means that if you, you know, if you do good, you're not going to suffer. That's not true. That's not what Peter's getting to. He's, he's going to point us to our ultimate good, but he says, who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you suffer or when you suffer, should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in the, in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So sum up verse 17 real quick, and then we're going to dig into the, to the meat of this text. You're going to suffer. If you're a human, you're going to go through tough times. Are you going to suffer and go through the tough times of this life with the Lord or without him? Are you going to suffer walking through it, seeking him, seeking to do good or without Christ? Back up with me now and we'll look at the text. First of all, 
Peter gives us a command here to not be intimidated. There at the end of verse 14, don't be intimidated. Don't fear those in this world. Now he begins that, uh, that idea with this question, who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? Now, I want to take just a moment to, to take a little side note on this idea of goodness in 1 Peter. In, in just the letter of 1 Peter, Peter uses the word good uh, 15 times, but about 10 of those times, he specifically uses it in this manner. In, in one place, he says God is good. Okay, that's a little bit different. But there's 10 times in 1 Peter where he uses it in the, with the idea of us doing what is good or uh, having a, a clear or a good conscience. Uh, the CSB shows it, uh, it gives us, uh, translates the, the words here good uh, 15 times. The New, New American Standard kind of focuses in and only uses the word good for those nine or 10 times that it is related to us and what we do. Uh, but the majority of, of translations will translate that the Greek words, they're good about 15 times. The idea of, of doing what is good in Peter's mind is seeking to follow the commands of Christ and following Christ, okay? It's not that Peter is not teaching uh, self-righteousness here, that it's through our works that, that we are made righteous. That's, he's not teaching soteriology here, his, his, his theology of salvation. What he is teaching is that we as God's children ought to be seeking the Lord and seeking to follow him to do what is right, to do what is good. And so when he, he starts out here, he says, who's going to harm you if you're devoted to what is good? So his call is for us to commit first and foremost to do what's good. Commit yourself to follow Christ and his goodness. That ought to be the foundation that in our relationship with the Lord, we are seeking to follow Christ and just to, to do what's right in life, to do what is good in life. That even when we do our very best to do what is good, we will still face suffering. And that's going to be his point here. We're going to face suffering. Don't be intimidated by the attacks from this world. Don't be intimidated by what you might suffer. Now, when the people that Peter was writing to, the church that Peter was writing to, these folks were facing horrible, if they weren't at this point, they were soon going to be facing very horrible persecution. Some of them had already been physically persecuted for their faith and more persecution was coming. So when he, when he encourages them, don't fear, don't be intimidated, he says, do not fear them. Now, you and I are most likely not going to face that type of suffering of persecution here in our world, here in the United States where we live. Now, there are pastors, not that way, that have been imprisoned for their faith. Uh, there were several pastors imprisoned in Canada during the COVID outbreak simply for holding outdoor services with people in their cars because they were breaking Canadian law. And several spent months in prison. There's pastors in Canada who have been imprisoned for preaching that homosexuality is a sin in public places. So, it may very well be coming our direction, uh, that type of 
suffering, but that still does not match up to what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer present day in communist China or in parts of, of Africa that are controlled by uh, the Muslim movements or even brothers and sisters in Christ in India who are being tortured and, and brutally beaten by radical Hindus. That's some of the suffering that Peter and the church that Peter's writing to, that's what they were facing. And so he's encouraging them that you're going to face suffering. You're going to face suffering that's not fair. Now, we may not face that kind of suffering, but here's what I learned a long time ago. My suffering is still my suffering. I remember when I first came here as pastor after years of dealing with Katie's health and and Katie going through surgeries and it just sometimes very unimaginable what were almost torturous things. I remember spending 45 minutes in a treatment room where they were trying to get an IV started when she was a tiny little one because she was so dehydrated and, and having to hold her down while the nurses and doctors were trying to start IVs. And they're trying every access point in her arms and her hands and her feet and her forehead. And it was just excruciating. And then came here as pastor and associate pastor at the time uh he had a little boy and he took his little boy for his first set of shots and he came back to the office talking about how traumatic it was to see his kid get shots i was not very sympathetic and i realized i was wrong just because susan and i had faced certain level of of suffering and pain with Katie, that did not lessen the struggle that he was going through, watching his little boy for the very first time being intentionally harmed, you know what I mean, having those needles poked in him and, and the trauma that that creates. So though not all suffering is the same, when we suffer, it still hurts. And when we suffer, we still have to make a choice of how we're going to face that suffering whether we're doing it with the Lord or not. And, and, and our hope needs to be focused in a particular place. Now, the particular place, I think he gives us a hint of in here in verse 14 when he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, so you're doing what's right and now you have an evil people that are causing you to suffer because of it, you are blessed. Now, Peter's not saying there that you are, uh, that the suffering that the attack is the blessing. What Peter is reminding them is that we are a blessed people. I, I used to, you'll hear me say this, and there's a couple of the guys in the church I have this little joke with, but I learned it working at, at May when I, we were working on a project. We had some volunteer Christian builders there, and there was this one older guy. He was in his 80s. I mean, he was one of the older guys on the team that was working on our, our building, and I'd walk by him every morning, and I'd say, how are you this morning? And he'd say, better not deserve every morning. He'd say, better not deserve. About the third or fourth morning, I asked him, I said, well, I, I really appreciate your answer, but what do you, why do you say that? And he goes, because I deserve to be headed for hell and I'm headed to heaven. He remembered that regardless of where he was in life, that he had an inheritance that was ahead of him that he was looking forward to. And so in our suffering, we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to be intimidated by anything that this world throws at us or by anybody that seeks to do us harm in this world, 
ultimately as a believer, because we have an inheritance that Peter has already told us is undefiled, that is unending. We have an inheritance in Christ that cannot be taken away from us. So no matter what, how bad things get in this life, they can't even compare. The, the greatest suffering of this world cannot even compare to the glory that God has prepared for his children when we step out of this world into his. So what a, what a beautiful focus. When we face suffering in this life, we remember what's ahead. Because of that, we don't have to fear or be intimidated by the things of this world. So no matter how painful the cancer becomes or how debilitating our health issues or how painful the loss of a loved one in Christ, we still have a future. We still have a hope. We have something to look forward to. And so when Peter gets to, the, to verse 15 here, that's what he's encouraging us to grab a hold of. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy and be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We don't have to be afraid of the things of this world. We don't have to be afraid of what it throws at us. We don't have to be afraid of the people of this world. We don't have to be afraid of the illnesses in this world. We don't have to be afraid of the, the economy in this world. We don't have to be afraid of the governments in this world because our King, our Lord, our God has overcome this world. Amen? Yeah. And because he's overcome the world, if we will focus on that, that he has overcome the world, and we'll remember that, that we are blessed in him. And when we step out of this world, we step into a place of glory. We can face anything that this world throws our way. And as we face the suffering and the turmoil and the pain and the anguish that inevitably we'll face in this world in some way or another, and, and, and as your pastor, I've walked with many of you through a lot of those turmoil, sometimes it's the loss of a job and the fear for, for what comes next and how I'm going to take care of my family. Sometimes it's as huge as the loss of a child. But I've walked with you through those times, and if we, we focus our, our attention on Christ and the blessings that we have in him, we can walk through this world victoriously. And we can be ready to share our faith, to point to the one that we've placed our hope in. I, I mean, I'll just say it. I, I would not be up here today if it were not for the power of the spirit of a holy living God to carry Susan and I through some of the most excruciating loss that I could ever imagine. I still have memories of carrying my daughter into that emergency room for the last time, of saying, I love you, Katie, as she got on the, the elevator to go down to the treatment room where she was gonna, they were gonna try to open up that, that last stint that she had for dialysis. Standing over her bedside as she took her last breath and having to be the dad who would say, I want you to remove the bag. 
and the emergency personnel say, you know, if we remove the bag, she, she'll quit breathing. And I said, I know. Katie was ready to go home, and I, I knew that. To ask the chaplain behind me, after Katie took her last breath, to read the words of John chapter 11, where Jesus said, those who live and believe in me shall never die. To go up to one of those little family rooms and, and have that big old tall surgical assistant come in and talk to us and he kind of apologized. There's nothing that he, he could say, but he kind of tried to help us through it. And then my wife looked at him and said, it's okay. Katie was ready. So that we could share in all of that, the hope that was inside of us through the suffering and trauma turmoil of this world. First, Peter's advice here is to, one way to put this is to sanctify Christ in your hearts. Sanctify means to set aside to, to allow Christ to reign and rule in your hearts. He, he says in verse 15, have in your hearts regard Christ as lo the Lord, as holy. holy. You mean set aside. Regra regard Christ as your king, the holy one that reigns in your heart, ready at any time to give a defense. So if you're for you to be ready to give a, a defense for the suffering that is in you, you have to have Christ in you. Far too many people want to live life however we want to. We don't want to live for this world. We don't want to enjoy this world. And all of a sudden, suffering comes and pain comes. And we go run into Christ. And Christ is not going to reject someone. But if you haven't been walking in a relationship with Christ and he is not dwelling in you, you're not going to have the internal resources to face the suffering and the pain. In, in John chapter 16, where, where, you know, John ends that, uh, or Jesus ends that speech. John 16 is his last speech before he goes to the cross, okay? So that last speech to the disciples as he's teaching them, he ends it with those words in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. That's how he ends the speech. But through a large portion of John chapter 16, what he's telling us is that he is going to send his Holy Spirit, who's going to be our comforter, who is going to be in us, and is going to be with us, and he's going to carry the disciples through these tough times that are right around the corner. And when I say right around the corner, it's less than 24 hours away. They're about to watch him being beaten, nailed to a cross, and their own lives being threatened. And so Jesus is telling them, I'm, I'm sending you a resource. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be in you in, in the form of my Holy Spirit. So when Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, it is literal that we have a hope in us. The living Christ, the resurrected Lord has sent his spirit to walk with us and dwell in us. And, and if you have been walking with Christ before the suffering comes, then you have the resources to face it. If not, you're trying to catch up. You're, you're working from behind. So Peter says, 
set Christ up, sanctify Christ in your hearts. Let him be Lord, let him reign, let him be the holy one of your hearts first. Then be ready to give a defense. So when opportunity comes, point to Jesus. I'll tell you, there's nothing in me that can, can in my flesh, that could make it in those tough times. I, I, we ask this question a lot, and I've heard people deal with this issue. How do you face horrible loss and death if you don't have Christ, if you don't have that hope in you? Some people face it with pills and whiskey. They turn to all kinds of things of this world to try to deaden the pain, but you won't, those will never give you victory. They'll never give you the ability to walk on top of the water, walk on top of the storms like a relationship with a living Christ will. So set your hope on Christ and then tell people that he's the one you set your hope on. Be ready to give a defense. One of the things that I was reminded of in staff meeting this week is this is, a, is kind of a, a requirement then that Peter's telling us as Christians, we need to get into the word. How are you gonna be able to give a defense for the hope if you don't understand the hope that, if you haven't focused on the Christ that's in you and, and the hope that you have through his death, burial, and resurrection. But if you're in his word and you're studying his word and you know his word, then when somebody asks you, well, how, how is it? Well, why is it that Christians have to suffer? You say Christians suffer like everybody else. This is what Jesus said. This is what his word said. Well, how can you go through this kind of suffering? Well, because the spirit of the living God dwells in me and empowers me to face this suffering. It's not that I'm not hurting. It's not that I'm not suffering. It's that there's a, there's a resource inside of me called the spirit of the living God who empowers me to point to him in the midst of the suffering. That's the hope that we have. And then he says... Let's not forget this. I love the way that Peter did this because this, this just is almost not Peter saying it. Verse 16, he says, yet do this with gentleness and reverence. You know, when I study Peter in the, in the Gospels, I never think of Peter having gentleness and reverence. <laughs> Peter's the guy who, who, who cussed at the, 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 the servant girl who was, you know, asking if he was with Jesus, the one who was in trial. Peter's that old rough fisherman. And yet Peter's grown in his faith. And he says, when you share the hope that's in you, do it with gentleness and with reference. Our world is not going to respond to hatred and vitriol. In fact, the, the, the very truth is, if I were, if I was, I stand in the pulpit and I say, you know, the word of God teaches that such and such is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. The word of God teaches that adultery is a sin. In the eyes of this world, some people say that's hate speech. I can say it with the calmest meaner and the, with, a, with, with the kindest heart and, and, the, and the most uh, humble intent, but this world is still gonna call it hate speech because it doesn't like the truth of what I have to say. So it's not up to the world or you to worry about the world to measure whether or not you're speaking hate or not, but it is up to the Lord. He's the one who we're gonna stand before. 
And Peter calls on us as his, as the children of the living God, when we give a defense for our faith, we do it with gentleness and reverence, humbly, just like he's been saying all along, that we have a humble heart and understand and look, and maybe this will help you, it helps me. I don't have to defend God. He can defend himself. I don't have to prove God to anybody. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand at the, the feet of the Grand Tetons. God's already proven himself to me. He's a mighty God. He's powerful. And, and, and yes, if he wants to give life or death, he can do it. I don't care what Jesse Duplantis says. It's not up to your words or mine. God is the king. He is the creator. He's the ruler. And I don't have to defend him. Well, if I don't have to defend him, I don't have to prove him to anybody. All I have to do is simply give an explanation of why I'm okay in the midst of this suffering. I can do that humbly and graciously. I don't have to be offended if somebody else says, well, I don't believe in that God. Okay, you don't have to believe in that God. He's real. He believes in you, <laughs> right? And so we're to be ready to give a defense. And he, he gives us a couple things here that I don't want you to miss. First one is that uh, we, we set aside, we sanctify Christ in our hearts. We're walking in a relationship with Christ. He's king, he's ruler already before we face suffering. Then when we're going through the suffering, we're willing to speak and point to Jesus, hope. And then, and we have to know our hope before we do. And then third, we do it with the right spirit. And then he gives us this, this last kind of command to keep our conscience clean. He says, so that when you are, keep a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those disparaging your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. The word that's translated keeping a clear conscience there is, is actually uh, functions, that phrase functions as an imperative, as a command. And so the CSB translates it keeping a clear conscience. It could just as easily be translated keep as a command. So Peter's telling us, if you're going to be an effective witness for Christ, you're going to be walking in a relationship with him and seeking to serve him. You're going to, you're going to keep a clean conscience. Otherwise, you're going to be called a hypocrite. If you're out here partying it up, boozing it up, and then you want to say, oh yeah, the man upstairs is going to take care of me. The world's going to look at you and see that, that you're a hypocrite. If you're walking in a relationship with Christ and you're seeking to serve him, yeah, you, you're going to fail. Every one of us is going to fail and fall short at times. But when we're seeking to serve him and we point to Christ, we do it with a clear conscience. It's impactful to a lost world. Otherwise, far too often, we end up looking like clowns when we, we have Christian leaders who are in all kinds of, of horrible, sinful situations that that end up coming to light. And, and they're the ones who, who seem to be the most uh, preachy and the most uh, 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 demanding of others. Keep a clean conscience. Walk in that, that relationship with Christ in good conduct so that you're not shown to be. A... But then I want to sum, because we, we said this at the beginning, we're going to say it here at the end, because you see it in verse 16 and 17. Verse 17, he says, it is better to suffer for doing good that if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 
if it's God's will, sometimes you're going to suffer for doing good. Ultimately, what that verse indicates is that all of us are going to go through suffering. Some of us are going to suffer for doing good. Some of us are going to suffer for doing evil. Some of us are just going to suffer because they're suffering in this world. We, we will face suffering. Notice in, in back in verse 16, he says that when you are accused, you as a Christian are going to be accused by the lost world of things that you didn't do. You're going to be accused of, of stuff that's not right. It's, it's going to, you're going to say, that's not fair, but it's going to happen. He doesn't say if, he says when. So when you are falsely accused, when you suffer, whether for doing good or for doing bad, understand that it is inevitable. And so Peter's command and Peter's focus here is to make sure that you're walking in that relationship with Christ, that you have set him aside as ruler of your heart so that you can point back to him as the reason for your hope. Now, I want to end with this. How do I know that I'm going to be okay when I take my last breath on this, this earth? I've had people ask me before. They said, well, in fact, I had a guy that was a, when Katie was in the hospital, had a guy who was clearly a Christian who loved the Lord, who was walking with the Lord. He was an elder in his church. And I said something about, well, certainly at least we know that when we take our last breath on this earth, we'll be with the Lord in heaven. He goes, well, I hope so. And I, I asked him, I said, well, how, what do you mean you hope? So I've, I figured out that he came from a, a, a Christian faith or a Christian denomination that doesn't believe in security of the believer. And so he was hoping that, that the Lord would hold on to him and take him home. And, and so I talked to him a little bit about that. I said, well, you hope so? I said, you know, 1 John chapter 5 says you can know so. 1 John 5, John said, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. You can know, and you can know because there's only one right answer. And that is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus himself. It's not based on your works. It's not based on whether you slip or fall. It's not based on even if your suffering is because of your sin or if your death is caused because of your sin. Sometimes we just do stupid stuff. Our eternity future in Christ is dependent upon whether or not we put our hope and trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, it is settled. A couple Easter's ago, I saw for the first time that Alistair Bregg quote, uh, and I've seen it a lot recently come across uh, Facebook reels and YouTube shorts and those kind of things. And it's that, that he, he tells that story of the man on the middle cross. You remember that? And nobody can tell the story like he does, but it's a beautiful picture. Of, of, you know, at one point, both of these thieves on either side of Jesus were, were making fun of him or were saying negative things about him. But one of them eventually looks to Christ and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And the guy died. After that, that guy steps into heaven, this is, this is that, that beautiful quote. Alistair, he's telling the story. He says, can you imagine? I, I want to meet that guy when he gets to heaven. Can you imagine what that was like? He comes up to the gates of heaven and an angel meets him there. And he says, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I, I, I don't know. And he said, well, uh, how did you get here? And he said, well, uh, I, I just died on the cross and I'm, I'm here. And he says, uh, 
weren't you the thief? And he says, oh, yeah, it was the thief. And he goes, so the angel says, hold on a minute, hold on. Let me go get my supervisor angel. And he goes, it's a supervisor, a supervisor angel. And he comes back to him and he asks him, he says, oh man, let me ask you some questions. Uh, uh, how often did you go to the synagogue? And he goes, well, I've never been to the synagogue. Well, uh, do you understand? Let's just get straight to it. Do you understand, do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture? And he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, well, well what, do, do you understand grace by faith and he goes i i, I don't get it and, and the angel is flustered and frustrated and he looks at the at this thief and he says well, well why are you here then he said the man on the middle cross said i could come that is the only answer that's the only hope that you have and that i have the only reasonable hope that we have of eternal life is if the man on the middle cross says we can come. And if you put your faith and your trust in the man on the middle cross, then you can face anything that this world brings, any amount of suffering. And so when you're asked to give a defense, whether it's before an angel at the gates of heaven or whether it's from a doctor who asks you why you're still smiling when he just told you that, that you only have six months to live. When you're asked to give a defense, a reason for your hope, point to the man on the middle cross because he is your only hope. He's my only hope. And in Christ, we can face the most difficult challenges of eternity. In Christ, we can face the most difficult challenges of today. No suffering is bigger or greater than what the Spirit of the living God can carry you through every single day of your life. Your hope is in Christ. So I would ask you two things. Christian, when you face those times, do you give honor do you give a defense? Do you point to your hope, the hope that's within you? And then second, do you have that hope within you? If you were to stand before God today and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question? Have you put your faith and your trust in the only one who can get you there? The man on the middle cross, Jesus. If you have, he is your hope. And that's the only place that we can put our faith. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.